thank God. Hopefully it doesn't freeze halfway through. I know. It's like we have a ghost in the computer. <laughs> what? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's like there is a ghost in the house. Thank you. <laughs> He's just like tired of Our listening shit. to us talk. Yeah, literally. About ghosts that aren't him. I don't believe. Or her. I don't know. Stan, so you can say him. They. You're right. They. Mm-hmm. How's your week? It was good. How was yours? Good. Sick. Yeah. Sick. Great. <laughs> okay. I'm sure people love this. <laughs> it's like we don't live together. <laughs> tell tell the folks about what you did yesterday. I got a tattoo. You didn't get a tattoo. I got three tattoos in one spot. Yeah. Well, I mean, not in one spot. In one body part. Yeah. On my forearm. You should have said forehead. On my forehead. (laughs) (laughs) No. He got three tattoos, completely outlined, shaded, and colored in one sitting. Holy shit. That's crazy. Like, what? Like, took four hours? Like, not even little baby tattoos. They're big. Yeah, it covers the whole front of your forearm and then part of the side of your arm. Yep. Yeah, this dude did great, so... He's fast. 10 out of 10 if you're in uh, northern Colorado or Denver, like Denver or any, anything like that. If you go to Ritual and go see the owner, Billy Crandall, he's a badass. He busted out the outline in, like, I'm not even kidding, like 20 minutes. You were shocked. I literally was like, he's <laughs> done already? Yeah. That's, that blows my mind. He did so fast. Yeah. And, and it's good. Well, it was, like, good yeah. line work, too. Yep. Like, the curve of the eagle's head is perfect it's not jagged at all yeah it's bad i'm amazed it's sore as hell (laughs) um but beyond that yeah super badass i'm pretty excited for you good 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 we go back to work tomorrow just kidding i love my chum (laughs) i do but i'm bummed out (laughs) you know that's how it is everybody going back to work just sucks yep but once you're in it it's not so bad yep Popped open the camper today for the first time in a couple of months. Dragged the dogs into it so they can enjoy camping with us. Yes, we're going camping right after our wedding, hopefully. For the first time in that pop-up camper, so I'm a little nervous. No, but... that's not true. We want to do a test run before then. Yeah. It'll work out. Yeah. So if you guys know anything about um, water lines or electrical or propane hookups for a very old pop-up camper... Feel free to email us at whoknewpodcast at gmail.com because I am stressed. Oh no, you're <laughs> fine. We don't need any of that. But that's like the luxury of having a pop-up camper. Luxury schmuggery. What, do you want a $2,000 tent? Yeah. That's what we got right now. That sounds great. <laughs> you're such a liar. <laughs> Sammy's the type who will just like stick by her guns. <laughs> even, <laughs> even when like it's silly <laughs> she looked at me really mean just now <laughs> i was waiting for you to say something else like dumb oh no i would mm. never say that okay no um so yeah other than that let's get this show on the road yeah yeah cool i think you're first i am first uh i had no idea what to talk about this week until jack finally told me what he was talking about and then i was like heck yeah heck yeah i've got an inspiration it's so. Axe Murder Week. <laughs> it's, yeah. Or as I like to call it, Axe Axe Baby. <laughs> Just imagine Vanilla Ice Phenomenal. singing that. Not me. <laughs> axe Axe Baby. 
Yeah. Anyways, so um, let's go back over a hundred years ago to Villisca, Iowa. Nice. Uh, whose population at the time was more like around two thousand. Which I just want to put that into perspective because now, as of, or like at least as of 2019, the town had a population of 1,200. So it's just gone downhill from there. Oh, no. Yeah. I thought you were going to give some statistics. Like, Colorado State University has 30,000 students. Yeah, no, it's not. I thought it was going to be booming too, but it's gotten worse. I think probably because of the stigma of the house. Mm-hmm. and everything like that and also because uh back then according to my research or like my understanding is that there was a lot of it was a like a go through town basically so there was a lot like with trains and since people don't really travel by trains anymore the appeal to like live there has gone down mm-hmm. but if you live in iowa and you know why people don't want to live there please let me know because i'm just making assumptions iowa. i don't know i feel like um more than likely it seems like it would have been a like farming town which is true based off of like the things that i've read right so i wonder if that industry just kind of dried up with other various like mass production stuff right perhaps i don't know i'm speculating yeah i mean that could be a good reason because a lot of the main characters that we're talking about in this story were farmers Mm -hmm. and stuff so Let's talk. On Sunday evening, June 9th of 1912, a Josiah, he likes to go by Joe, Moore, and his wife Sarah took their four children, Herman, who was 11, Mary, who goes by Catherine, in some of my reports, I'm going to call her Mary, because her name was Mary Catherine Moore. So I don't know if she went by Catherine, I'm just going to say Mary. Okay. Um, She was 10, and then also the same thing with Arthur, he... A lot of reports called him Boyd, but I showed that Boyd was his middle name. Okay. So everybody's um, going by middle names. But, except for the other not. two children, Herman and Paul. Right. So it's just weird. So Arthur was seven and Paul was five. Uh, all four of the kids went to a children's day service at the Presbyterian Church. And they were with, I'm sure, other children, but most significantly two other little girls who were named Lena, who was 12, and Ina, Stellinger, who was eight. I'd like to think... I've heard Lena pronounced differently, like, like Lena, Lena or Lena. Yeah. I. This is me trying to be quirky, thinking that the parents wanted to call them Lena and Ina. <laughs> like, Lena was the first one, and then when they named the second one, they were like, just take the L off. Yeah, and change the E into an I. Yeah. Ina. Oh, is that how you it's say Lena it? It's Lena and Ina. Oh, yeah. thank God. <laughs> 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 that makes so much more sense. <laughs> it's like you never listened to my episode of, on this. I did. I just didn't pay attention <laughs> on to the other podcast, you, babe. You know that my names mean nothing to me. <laughs> we could talk about an actor like two hours before, and you bring up the name again. I'm like, who? Well, that happened today. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, like, I'm not surprised that I didn't remember <laughs> Ina. <laughs> Excuse me. You're right, you're right, right. Anyways, Lena and Ina were neighbors and also went to the children's day service with the Moore children. Um, And those two little girls asked their parents after church if they could stay overnight at the Moore house because they were all friends. Um, 
And in case anybody cares, the Children's Day Service was an end-of-the-year Sunday school program, which sounds like a blast. Yes. Yep. Sarah Moore was the co-director of the Children's Day Service, and so her children performed, like, speeches and, like, recited things. I guess that was significant, because I found that in a lot of reports, so... Good for them for being devoted, I guess. Um, The church service ended with a typical what happens at the end of church service is everybody just, you know, hanging out, talking. Lingers. Yeah. Getting some coffee, catching up with the neighbors. Um, And so it lasted until about 9.30 p.m. Holy shit, what time does this shit start? (laughs) What church are they going to? They get out at 10 (laughs) o'clock. Dang, that sounds awful. Uh, so when everybody left, uh, no one suspected that, I don't know, people were going to die that night. Fair. Who does? Who suspects that? Correct. Um, so the Moors and, uh, the Stillinger girls walked the three blocks to, from the church to the home. Uh, they ate some delicious cookies and milk and then they went into bed and that's where everything goes bad. (laughs) So, uh, in the middle of the night of June 9th, going into the 10th, the Moore house was full of, like I has, has, like I had, uh, okay, has said, had led into, has uh, there were sleeping children and adults. Um, I do kind of want to caution that all the information I'm going to tell you is basically speculation. Because back then they didn't have forensics, and so like they just took the word of like one of the lead investigators, and they're like, "Yep, that must be how it happened." I feel like that is the case for so many different, like, yeah, crimes back then. Like, right? What do you have to go off? Like, <laughs> it's like I think he must have done this, and everyone's like, "Yeah, yeah, that, yeah." yeah like Colonel Mustard good. in the fucking library with a lead pipe. So just keep that in mind, even though it's like the most well-known story as you can think of when it comes to x hmm. stuff but um x stuff x um it's just interesting to think of like what would have progressed if we they had the forensics that we did today mm-hmm. you know what i mean like yeah. would the story be different either way um so i'm gonna play by play this to you are you ready yep an unknown person entered the home through the unlocked back door with an axe in hand. It's important to note that the axe ended up being the Moore's own axe. Um, it's assumed that he or whoever, I'm sorry, I tried to be non-binary when I was talking about this killer. It is assumed that they took it from the shed that was outside because it was very common back in the day to like... Not only everybody had an axe just laying around, but to literally have it laying around. So, that's it. Right. So, this person has an axe. They're entering the home. Then they go and find an oil lamp. And they bent the wick. I imagine splitting the wick in half. I don't know how the correct term is, but everywhere I said, looked and said it, it that they bent the wick in half. Oh, wait, no, that does make sense now that I'm saying it out loud. Anyways... They just wanted to minimize the size of the flame, and so they lit the lamp and then turned it down. I guess you can do that with lamps. So the unknown intruder walked past one of the lower bedrooms on the first floor, where the cylinder sisters were sleeping, 
and then the person went up the stairs where the two other bedrooms were in the home. They ignored the room where the four children were sleeping until they reached what seemed to be their final destination where Joe and Sarah were sleeping. And in one movement, the intruder brought down the flat end of the axe onto the back of Joe's head, which crushed his skull and presumably killed him instantly. Um, and it happened so quickly that Sarah couldn't even wake up or register what happened, and the intruder then brought the axe down on her head and killed her too, or at least left her to die. The killer then went to the bedroom where the more children were sleeping and did the same to them. Um, the good thing is, is that it's most likely that the children didn't wake up before they died, so hopefully if they did feel something, it wasn't too crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, so then, unfortunately, the killer continued down, back, back down the stairs, uh, and brought the axe down on the Cylinder sisters, um... So it's suspected that the eldest, Lena, may have woken up just before she was murdered mm. because it looked as though she had a defensive wound on her arm. But who's to say? Um, so as if all of that's not fucked up enough, the killer just gets fucking dumb. And he, I'm sorry, they go back up the stairs and then continued to bash in the heads of all of the people they just killed with the axe hmm. about 20 to 30 times after he already killed them with one. Uh, so much so that all of the fam family members and, I guess, everybody that was in the house was unrecognizable. And then the killer pulls up the bed sheets to cover up Joe and Sarah's heads. He placed an undershirt over Herman, a dress over Mary, and the same with um, Arthur and Paul's faces. He covers their faces as well. And the girls downstairs also have their faces covered with the bed sheets. Hmm. I'm assuming that the killer maybe went individually one by one to try to like kill them with the flat end of the axe and then go through and like get the gross satisfaction that they were looking for with killing everybody um probably just to like i don't know make sure nobody woke up during the attack yeah um so once all that was done the intruder went through the house and put things like clothes and blankets over the mirrors as well as, at some point, they took out a two or maybe four pound slab of raw bacon, wrapped it in a towel, and left it in the upstairs bedroom. I'm assuming it was Joe and Sarah's bedroom, uh, next to a piece of keychain that reports say didn't belong to the Moors. But I also just want to say that I found other reports that said the bacon was left downstairs with the Stillinger sisters, but... Not sure. Like every murder that we've had, that's super fucked up. The killer stayed in the house for some time and even did so much as to fill up a bowl of water so that he could wash. I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep saying he. So he could wash his bloody hands. Um, then after five o'clock in the morning, the killer finally left um, the axe in the room with a cylinder sisters placed the lamp at the top of the stairs, and left the house. 
he locked the doors behind him and took the house keys. It wasn't until later that morning when a neighbor, Mary Peckham, got concerned that the Moore family weren't out and about doing their daily routines yet. And so that neighbor called Joe's brother, Ross, and asked for him to go check it out. Ross thankfully had a spare key to the home and got inside about 8 o'clock, so three hours after the killer is presumed to have left. Hmm. He barely starts the search of the first floor before he finds the two Stillinger girls, um, though it's noted that he only saw the bloody beds and then left. He ran to his brother's hardware store, telling an employee to uh, fetch the marshal, who was Henry Horton. He goes by Hank. And the marshal arrived at 8.30. So Hank brought along several people, such as a Dr. J. Cooper, a Dr. Edgar Hugh, a Dr. Wesley Ewig, as well as the minister of the Moore's Presbyterian Church. Um, the coroner, L.A. Linquist, wasn't far behind, as well as a Dr. F.S. Williams, who was the first to examine the bodies and determine the time of death. Um, what is well known about this particular incident is that the officers on scene didn't secure the location. Because it was a crime scene, so as many as a hundred curious neighbors and townspeople went into the home and basically fucked it up. Um, so much as to take fragments of Joe's skull. Does it? I don't know. It's disturbing to be like, you know this person, and let's <laughs> take a piece of his skull. Like, why? Anyways, investigators tried to use bloodhounds to locate the killer, but I imagine with the crime scene being contaminated didn't work. Obviously, it's still unsolved to this day. Um, it's believed that the suspect was tall enough to cause a gouge mark in the roof when lifting the axe above his head in Joe and Sarah's bedroom. So that's something that we'll talk about later. Um, as well as the killer is believed to be left-handed because of the coroner's deduction based on the blood splatter. Huh. I have no idea how he would be able to tell that, but I am not at all educated in how that works. So it's believed that the killer waited for the Moore family to go to sleep and was watching them because there was an impression found in a hay bale uh, in their shed to suggest somebody was sitting and laying there. Um, which would have been convenient because there was a knot hole right where the hay bale was that went perfectly towards where the Moore house was. And this is also probably where the axe would have been kept. So it's a very likely situation. But I also found reports stating that there were cigarette butts found in the attic. And I guess nobody, uh, like Joe or Sarah, didn't smoke. So they believed that that was the intruder that was smoking in the attic waiting for them to go to sleep but i don't know maybe during his time rummaging around he had some smokes in the attic mm -hmm. i don't know i'd think that they would wake up from the cigarette smell also noted was that lena's underwear was missing and her nightgown was pulled up past her waist which suggested that there was some sexual interaction however there wasn't any evidence to suggest there was it just was a weird situation i guess or maybe the killer wanted to but then chickened out for some reason it is also believed that with choosing axe as a murder weapon it was for convenience because like i said most houses had them laying around and 
also, it's less difficult to kill somebody with an axe when they're sleeping rather than when they're awake and aware. Because I don't know if you guys have seen Scream, but there's a scene in Scream 3 when one of the characters is trying to attack Ghostface with an axe and it doesn't go well. Pretty slow. Yeah, super slow. You have to get a lot of momentum. Just not a very good weapon. Um, so let's talk about suspects. The obvious suspect for the community was a Frank Jones, who was an Iowa state senator and businessman. And apparently there was a lot of bad blood between Frank and Joe. So much so that religious congregations were disputing guilt and innocence of Frank, such as Frank's own Methodist church was obviously profusing his innocence, while Joe's Presbyterian church was saying that Frank was guilty. So... Lots of feuds going on after death. Um, and it was so bad that if Joe and Frank were walking on the same side of the street, like on the sidewalk, uh, one of them would cross the street to avoid the other. Honestly, it's just like petty high school yeah. shit. Like, just be a, an adult and just walk on the same fucking sidewalk. Um, because of beliefs that Joe was having an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law, Donna... Um, that's where people think that this turmoil started. I mean, it didn't start there, but, like, really started escalating. Which, I really hate saying this, but a lot of the reports that I found stated that Donna had a reputation for having numerous relationships with married men. Yeah, uh, honestly, just because people have a lot of relationships in general doesn't mean that they're a bad person. Mm -hmm. But, unfortunately, they get flagged like that. Uh, so, the townspeople also didn't like the fact that she had, quote, habits of arranging romantic meetings over the phone, which apparently the townspeople thought this was odd because at, since the time of day she was calling it in, you had to, like, speak to an operator, I guess, and, like, ask for to get directed to whoever. And they thought that it was distasteful that she would do that during operator time so people could know what her business was. Honestly, it doesn't fucking matter. Anyways... Uh, Joe used to work for Frank for seven years and became the star salesman of Frank's farm equipment business at the time. However, Joe left in 1907 when he was over Frank's requirements of working 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. and Jeez. six days a week. Like, that's fucked up. That's, that's insane. Too, that's too much. Yeah. Um, so Joe clearly left and made his own business, which rivaled Frank's, especially since he took the John Deere account with him when he left, which, as you know, that is a very big name even today. So <laughs> that sucks to suck, Frank, uh, though Frank wasn't formally charged with involvement of the murders. Um, his political career was basically over. Though many townspeople simply think he got away with it because of what influence he had at the time. Uh, several also think that Frank would have been able to wield the axe himself. He was only 57 years old when the murders happened. And so they easily think that either he could have done it himself or had the means to pay somebody to kill the family. The theory that Frank paid somebody was a top theory of James Wilkerson, who was an agent of the Burns Detective Agency. So much so that uh, Detective Wilkerson even made a statement in 1916 claiming a man named William Mansfield was hired by Frank to kill Joe. 
Uh, Detective Wilkerson eventually got a grand jury together to consider the evidence that he gathered that was able to show that the hitman, uh, William, had a background to do the job, such as he was the chief suspect of a 1914 axe murderer of his own wife, her parents, and his child in Blue Island, Illinois. So... Blows my mind at how common like axe murders were but then you think about what you said before like that was such a common like people kept their axes in the same place every house had yeah one. and if you use the family's axe you could just leave it there mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be connected to you so. right it's like even if a family had guns like most likely hopefully they're locked away and it's mm-hmm. like you don't know that shit so we'll see just how common axe murders really are back in the day. Maybe, never mind. I was going to say maybe we should bring it back, but that's, oh. <laughs> I shouldn't wish that upon anybody. Um, unfortunately, William's alibi was airtight. He had been working several hundred miles away in Illinois at the time of the murders. So maybe Frank just hired a different hitman. I'm sure there's more than one hitman in America at the time. So... Even with all of that and Frank being dismissed, I guess, uh, Ross, who was Joe's brother, and the father of the two girls, uh, the Stillinger girls, who was also coincidentally named Joe, um, believed that Frank was guilty. But, again, that's where that ends, basically. So let's go to the next one, which I think is interesting. We're going to talk about a reverend... Uh, Lynn Kelly, who was quoted as being peculiar. Um, he was a Presbyterian preacher who would attend the more children's day service at church, but he also was a traveling reverend. So he just kind of went around everywhere. I don't really know how that works. Traveling it's like a traveling reverend. nurse, I guess. He goes where he's needed. So when I say peculiar, I mean he was a known sexual deviant and oh. had a record of mental health issues. So I'm so glad that this is the person that we have being a reference and monitoring the Children's Day program. Great. Anyways, apparently he's so peculiar that he placed an ad looking for a, quote, girl stenographer to do confidential work, end quote. And he put that in one of the, like, newspapers at the time, and a woman responded to the ad only to get a very inappropriate response, um, which was just very lewd and crude, and most of it was probably something she wishes she never hears again, but the gist of it is basically he wanted her to type naked. Oh, what the fuck kind of kink is that? Yeah, literally. Uh... So, Lynn was in Villisca uh, the night of the murders and even admits to catching a train at dawn right after the murders happened, though he didn't seem like a possible suspect because he was only 5'2", about 119 pounds. Um, And that's important because the gouge mark that was left on the roof implied it was from a taller person, but maybe he was, like, on his tippy toes trying to get mom. I don't know. Um... And also, he was left-handed, like the coroner thought that the killer was. So, that's not a very common thing. He also had been caught looking into windows of some of the homes in Villisca two days before the murders happened. So, he has a habit of... Uh, not voyeuring. Yeah? That's what that is, right? Maybe. Peeping, peeping Tom. Peeping Toms. 
Uh, either way, remember how I said Lynn was part of the Children's Day Service? Well, as you know, the Stillinger girls also went to the same church, so people of the community believed that he was obsessed with the children and that he was caught peeping into windows before, so there's thought that he was watching the Moore house at night doing similar things. Almost out. Which also makes me feel conflicted because if they found Lena with her dress up. Yeah. And he's a sexual deviant. I don't know. Fucked up. Uh, so, 1917, another grand jury was brought together to hear evidence linking him with Lena's murder. Nobody else's. They're just trying to focus on the eldest Stellinger sister. Um, so, they brought forth evidence such as bloody clothing that he had brought to a laundromat and the train that he had boarded, which eyewitnesses put in there around 519 in the morning. Which, um, they remember also him stating something about eight people being killed in Villisca before he boarded the train, which was odd because they weren't discovered until three hours after he had boarded the train. So how did he know this information if he didn't do it himself? Hmm. Also, it's important to note that the bloody clothes that he brought to the laundromat uh, ended up not being human blood, apparently. So that's how that hmm. ended. Uh, Lynn came back to Velisca about a week to two weeks later, showing a lot of interest in the murders. But I mean, it's a small town. Like, who wouldn't? I'm only defending him for a little bit because I'm not going to defend him anymore. Um, <laughs> he goes as far as to pose as a Scotland Yard detective in America to get a tour of the home from law enforcement. And they let him, like, <laughs> he was from England, like, he was in England, um, what's it called? When you come from one country to another? Im immigrant. Immigrant, thank you. Um, so he was from, he wasn't from America, so he had, like, that accent and everything, I'm sure, but either way, come on. So, that same year, um, after Lynn was arrested uh, in 1917 for being a suspect he eventually made a signed confession on august 31st stating quote i killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last i knew god wanted me to do it this way slay utterly came to my mind i picked up the axe went into the house and killed them end quote um Unfortunately, he later recanted this confession, claiming police brutality, and the witnesses that saw him on the train also changed their story. So the grand jury for Lynn's hearing ended up ruling in favor not to indict him. So he was a free man. <laughs> um, which brings us to our next suspect, which might get a little confusing. I tried to make it as not as possible, but we'll see. In 1911 to 1912, in the Midwest, there was a series of axe murders that suggested a transient serial killer. Uh, there was as many as 10 crimes that occurred, especially close to railway, tra railway tracks, mm -hmm. but super distant from, like, they were all over America. They went from Rainier, Washington, to Monmouth, Illinois. So, okay. I, it's kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they had 
very close similarities to the Velisca murders, so much so that in 1913, Special Agent Matthew McClowry of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, which is basically the start of the FBI, uh, he started with the murder of six in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, that occurred on September 1911, and continued all the way to Illinois and then to Kansas, um, where uh, three to five people died in those killings. And it's also noted that the murder in uh, Monmouth, Illinois, was actually committed with a pipe. So that's the only one that's not involving an axe. But... My thing is, is like, if they didn't have an axe there and he or she, whatever, if they ended up just picking up the first thing that came, like if they had pipes laying around, why not? Yeah. Uh, so then two more died in Paola, Kansas, which happened just four days before the Valeska murders. Uh, December 1912, two more murders happened in Columbia, Missouri, and this is where things start to kind of tie together, and eventually it's believed to be the end of this killing spree, if it is indeed connected. Um, the two that died in Columbia, Missouri were Mary Wilson and her daughter, Georgia Moore, which has no relation to the Moore family that we started talking about before. Common name. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so, Georgia had a son named Henry Lee Moore. Henry had a bit of a history with violence and is believed to be responsible for all of the killings. However, he wasn't, like, charged with that. So, okay. just keep that in mind. Uh, Henry was released from a reformatory in Kansas before the axe murder started and was arrested in Jefferson County, Missouri after they ended, which he was eventually convicted of the Missouri murders of Mary Wilson and his own mother, Georgia, which I guess Mary would be his grandmother. Um, his motive for the killing was that he wanted the deeds to the family house. It is believed by some, though, that they find it odd for a wandering serial killer to just finally go and kill his own family but if he was in washington at the time or whatever location and just decided to try to like practice on like strangers before he started killing his own family members Jesus he's just Christ. like catching a train to like get more practice in and then it's just gonna it's like even more dark than when you see people like like killers like that's a very different escalation than going from, like, you know, killing animals to hurting yeah. people to killing random people. Like, yeah. literally practicing so that you can do it to your family. Totally yeah. different. Which is, like, my theory, but it's not Ugh. a very good one. Um, but, I mean, if they're all close to train tracks, he literally could have just, like, killed somebody, hopped on easy. a train, gone to the next town, killed another person. So easy. Yeah. And you Super could pretty easy. much virtually do that. I think back then you could literally hop on a train, not really have to have a ticket. Like yeah. you could sneak onto a train pretty well. Yeah. And be totally no like no receipt of where you're going. So who knows? Maybe that was his plan and then he just finally got confident enough and went back to his home and killed his mom and grandma. <laughs> um so in eight of those ten incidents, uh the axe was found abandoned at the scene of the crime, and three of the murders, so three out of ten, including the ones in Villisca, were on a Sunday. Which, I don't know if that has any hmm. importance, but it was noted. 
So four of the ten, the killer covered the victim's faces. And in three, the scenes, or I'm sorry, three of the incidents, the killer washed themselves at the house. That's weird. Yeah. So then at least half of the locations where these murders happened, it seemed that the killer lingered in the house, which is what happened in Villisca. And another thing is that um, it was very common in two other homes, three if you're including Villisca, that the killer used one of those lamps. And I didn't mention this before because I didn't really understand it until now. Um, the killer took off the chimney to the lamp. So like that glass thing that yeah, covers it. He right. took that off, laid it down somewhere in the house, then bent the wick and then like left it there. So it was a very common thing. And what's the purpose? I mean, I imagine he just took the chimney off for con- convenience to be able to light it. Um and then bent the wick to like dim the light. Uh... And that happened in three out of the ten it's pretty significant i would think unless that was a common thing to do but that's I don't, what i'm wondering no is like i have no idea yeah. either but like that seems like it's kind of a not common thing if it's pointed out in all of my research mm-hmm. so i don't know it seems like an mo to me yeah. um though there's doubt that a wandering transient would have committed such a crime especially in Velisca. um Mainly because how would a stranger be able to locate Joe and Sarah so quickly without waking up other members of the house? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I could think it'd be pretty easy. You just look in every single bedroom while tiptoeing along. and would think so. Yeah. You look and see a child's face. You're like, nope, that's not the parent's bedroom. Nope, that's not the parent's bedroom. Yep. Yeah. Um, and also using the flat end of the axe uh, to kill showed that that person knew that it was likely the axe would get stuck if they used the sharp edge. So it would uh, likely have woken everybody up if he used the axe part. It is all an axe, but you know what I mean. Um, Also, in Villisca, it is worth noting that around 2 o'clock in the morning, a woman named Xenia Delaney heard footsteps approaching the stairs to her front door and tried to open it, but her door was locked. Big bummer. Yeah. I mean, not a big bummer for her, because she didn't get murdered. That's fair. Um, But I feel like if it was 2 o'clock, the killer would have already been in the Moore house, because they made it sound like the killer got there like around midnight or just after. So right. I don't know if it's just a coincidence because that happened the same night as when the Moors were killed. So probably not. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he just needed another axe. Decided he was going to really get down and dirty. So let's go to now on. <sighs> You know, I'm not going to do all of this. (laughs) I listed a whole bunch of, like, TV shows and stuff like that. But honestly, there's, like, a million documentaries and TV shows that you can watch about it. Um, You can go to iowacoldcases.org and search Villisca Murders to find a list of all of them. It's literally all there. Um, There's one thing that I want to bring up that there's one movie that popped up when I was searching for my research. And it's called The Axe Murders of Villisca. Clever. 
Uh, it premiered in 2016, and here is the synopsis per IMDb. It is a ghost story based on the house where the notorious and still unsolved 1912 axe murders took place. Three outcast teenagers break into the house in search of answers, but discover something far beyond their worst fears. Um, I have no idea where you can watch that, but I'm sure Jack and I will try to figure it out. Because yeah. it sounds interesting. Um, my computer just freaked out. I have no idea where I was. Um, so you can also go to the Axe Murder House if you'd like to take a trip to Iowa. Um, they do tours and they also do overnight tours of groups of one to six people. Just over $400, I think, like 430 something. Um, there is an additional charge of $75 for each person if it's over the six right. group size. Right. Um, which I think that's a really good deal. For six people, four hundred dollars. You split that six ways. That's like less than a hundred a person. Um, they also have virtual tours available on their website. If you just go to VilliscaIowa.com, um, and then while doing my research on one of the websites, I think it was HistoricMysteries.com, there was a comment at the end of the article of someone saying that the case was solved. Um, and then they linked a book on Amazon. So. Okay. I'm really bummed that I found this today when I was finishing up my research, so I haven't had time to read it myself. However, I will try to and give everybody an update on if I believe it's solved or not based off of these authors' right. interpretation or whatever it is. Um, the book is called The Man from the Train, Discovering America's Most Elusive Serial Killer, and it's by James, or I'm sorry, Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James. Uh, whom I'm assuming are somehow related if they have the same last name. Right. But that's it. That's all I have for you. So maybe it's solved. Maybe it's not. Unfortunately, nothing else in my research said that it was. So right. I'm inclined to believe that this is just there. It's. I feel like it's kind of like what you were doing with JFK. Like that one guy. Yeah. Who was he? He did like a whole bunch of like, right. like on his own investigation yeah. and has his own theories, but... But nothing's, like, ever conclusively, officially solved. Right. I feel like with these cases, and even with mine, like, how would you? Yeah, everyone's dead now. Everyone's dead. All the evidence is gone. There was none really collected in the first place. Like, you can yeah. really only speculate on stuff. I don't know. I don't know either. Phenomenal. Good job. Thanks. I love it. I've heard that story a bunch, and it just freaks me out every time i hear it because like yeah. hearing it and then like looking like not just at pictures but like watching all those ghost shows where they go into it and you can see like the axe marks in the ceiling yeah that freaks me out isn't like, it it's yeah. like it's terrifying to think mm -hmm. that somebody could just come into your house and just kill you just do that i don't yeah. get really what the motive was yeah to this day like i get like maybe the dad, the mom, but, like, why would you kill... The kids. The kids. Literally. It's fucked up. Well... I don't know. Especially, like, the Stillinger sisters. Exactly. It's like, how shitty do those... Or did those parents feel being like, we had to let them stay the night. This one night. Couldn't have waited. Oh, that would eat at you... For the rest of your life. Yes, that would yeah. ruin your life. Totally. Well, you ready for another fucked up story? Love it. Great. We're going to talk about Lizzie Borden. Of course. <laughs>
Which um, is funny because, like, I kept asking Jack what he was doing this week, and he kept saying it was going to be, he wanted to surprise me, it was going to be a secret. Um, until I was literally at a loss. I had no idea what to talk about. And he's like, I'm talking about Lizzie Borden. And I was like, I literally should have guessed. All he's been doing is listening to podcasts, <laughs> watching TV shows, all about Lizzie Borden. I should have fucking I known. I just got on this, like, fixation because one of the podcasts I listen to is called uh, Darkness Radio. And it's, like, one of the OG paranormal podcasts. It doesn't even call itself a podcast. It calls itself, like, a radio program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's by the guy that does the Holzer Files, and he's done a bunch on, like, Ghost Adventure. So he's, I mean, he's been doing this work for decades. Yeah. Um, And he recently was on a documentary that was made for Discovery Plus. And on Discovery Plus, they have a bunch of different documentaries uh, that they call Shock Docs. There's a bunch of different ones that they do. I recommend all of them. They're super good. There's a really good one on the Warrens that I think we like kind of watched, but not, we didn't sit down and watch it like without our phones in our hands. Okay. Um, but they recently did one called the curse. I think it's called the curse. Of, I put it in my notes. Hold on. Um, it's called the curse of Lizzie Borden. Um, and basically him, uh, Dave goes in with a medium that he's known for like years named Chris and a clairvoyant, uh, named Sam, who's actually related to the Bordens, um, along with like a bunch of other crazy family ties that were just bananas to hear about. But they go into the house, they investigate it. Um, Dave and Chris had been there like a decade before and had wild experiences and hadn't gone back since. Um, and during this sh- uh, podcast, they talk about the show. And during all of it, they basically go, they talk about like Lizzie's great aunt who lived next door to them. And, like, randomly drowned her two kids and then slit her own throat. Oh my god, I remember. 40 years before the Borden murders, which is, like, how's that never been really talked about? Yeah. Um, and they, during the, the investigation, they supposedly connect with Lizzie, who insists that she's innocent the whole time, and she maintained that her entire life. Um, and then they explore the idea that there might be some kind of um, dark... I don't know if you want to call it a demon or a ghost or whatever you call it. They think there's something on the property um, that might be an influence. And that would account for her great aunt, too, and mm-hmm. Lizzie and her uncle, John Morris, maybe, who is like a suspect. So anyways, it was super interesting. It got me on a tangent and I realized I'd never talked about it for this podcast. So I want to talk about it I love because it. there were some new insights uh, that I gleaned from Uh, that podcast and the documentary that I did not go over or know about uh, when I first talked about it on my other podcast. So let's go. Hell yeah, let's go. So weird. The first weird thing that I think is Lizzie's middle name was Andrew. (laughs) Her middle name was after her father. So they didn't even try like, you know, John Monet. Oh, yeah. His name was John Bennett. And they're like, we'll make this feminine John Bennett. Right. Nope. Lizzie Andrew Borden. <laughs> Couldn't have done like Andrea or something. Nope. It was going to be Andrew. Um, she was Ew, born on <laughs> July 19th of 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts, where she would remain for her whole life. Uh, her mom's name was Sarah Anthony Bordenod Andrew Jackson Borden. Nope. I fucking. <laughs> I forgot a space. Oh no. <laughs> uh Borden and. It's Borden and. 
<laughs> uh, to Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden. Her father, Andrew, was of English and Welsh descent, and he grew up in a pretty modest household, so they didn't have, like, a ton of money, and he struggled financially when he was a little bit younger, even though he was the descendant of wealthy and influential local residents, so there were people in town that he was related to that were pretty well off, but for whatever reason, he wasn't and his family wasn't. Uh, Eventually, he succeeded in the manufacturing and sale of furniture and caskets. Oh, God. And then became a successful property developer. He was a director of several textile mills in the area, and he owned quite a bit of commercial property, and he was also president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. At his death, uh, his entire estate was valued at the time at $300,000, which in 2020 was equivalent to $9 million. Yeah, I was imagining that's pretty high up there. So even though he was pretty wealthy at the time of his death, and obviously years prior to that, he was known to be really like stingy and frugal uh, when it came to money. For instance, uh, the Borden home didn't have indoor plumbing. Which is wild to me, because if you look at it, it seems like it would, and part of me was like, okay, well, was that um, normal for, like, most interior, or I guess most residential places at the time? And it was. It was a very common accommodation for wealthy people at the time, so you just didn't want it, I guess. That's weird. Uh, (laughs) The town of Fall River, uh, the... It was a pretty, like, well-off area, so it was, like, um, like, the Upper East End versus, like, Queens, right? Yeah. Fall River was Upper East End, so, um, everybody was pretty rich, but the wealthiest residents, including Andrew's cousins, tended to live in a more fashionable neighborhood called The Hill, which was further from the industrial areas of the city, but Andrew didn't. Um, and it's funny because Lizzie ends up moving to the hill. Okay. Um, Lizzie and her older sister, Emma Lenora Borden, uh, had a pretty religious upbringing and attended the Central Congregational Church. In her younger days, Lizzie was really involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to kiddos, um, uh, particularly kiddos of recent immigrants to the United States. And she was involved in Christian organizations such as the Christian Endeavor Society, several contemporary social movements such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which meant ladies who don't think alcohol should be a thing. Ladies who don't think alcohol should be a thing. The temperance movement was like uh, no alcohol. Like sobriety. Right. Gross. Right. So that kind of spurred um, like... What am I trying to say? Uh, What was the... Prohibition. Thank you. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Um, Prohibition. She was also a member of the Ladies Fruit and Flower Mission. So. (laughs) That sounds weird. (laughs) Three years after the death of Lizzie's mom, Sarah, um, Andrew married Abby Durfee Gray. And Lizzie stated that she called her stepmother Mrs. Borden, which is... (laughs) weird pretty cold she believed that abby married her dad for his money and uh 
Same. Yeah. In their house, they also had a live-in maid named Bridget Sullivan. They called her Maggie. Uh, she was 25 at the time, and she had immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland, and she ended up testifying that Lizzie and Emma rarely ate meals with their parents, so they were not close. And it's worth noting that they were full-grown-ass adults right. living in their parents' house when this happened. So, uh, In May of 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with oh a hatchet. God believing that they were attracting local kiddos who were coming to hunt them anyway. So I don't know what the point of that was, but turned out Lizzie was really upset about this because she had recently built a roost for all the pigeons <laughs> and everybody in town knew that she was fucking pissed. Like, dude, I built this whole thing. You knew I did it and you killed all the pigeons, you dick. So she was pissed off about that. Oh my gosh. Um, a family argument in July of 19, nope, 1892 prompted both sisters to take an extended uh, vacation in New Bedford. Oh, good. And they came back to Fall River about a week before the murders, and Lizzie chose to stay in a local boarding house or rooming house for four days before going back to the family house. So she, like, needed just a little bit more of a break. Yeah, she's like, this was nice and all, but I don't think I can handle this. I'm just not ready yet. Give me a couple days to adjust more. Um, And obviously there was definitely tension yeah. within the family uh, in months prior to the murders, especially over Andrew's recent gifts of various real estate to different parts of Abby's family. Oh. Um, after their stepmother's sister received a, a full-blown house, the sisters demanded and received a rental property, which was the home that they had lived in until their mom died, which they purchased from Andrew for one dollar. Oh, good. A few weeks before the murders, they sold the property back to him for $5,000, oh which God. is uh, equivalent in 2022, $144,000. So, that like, yeah. Seems like a bad deal. I don't know why he would have taken them up on that, but yeah, whatever. The night before the murders, John Morris, who was the brother of Lizzie and Emma's deceased mom, so their uncle on mom's side, uh, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss some business matters with Andrew because uh, I guess he had some kind of buy-in also. Okay. I just touch it sometimes when you're talking so it doesn't fall asleep. That's what she said. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> some writers have speculated that the conversation between john morris and andrew particularly about uh property transfer might have aggravated an already tense situation between the two that is pure speculation and not something that is um proven in any way also worth noting for several days before the murders the whole household was violently ill um a family friend later arsenic speculated that some mutton that was left on the oh. stove to use in meals over several days was the cause but abby abby was afraid that somebody had poisoned them because andrew like wasn't super popular in town so she thinks that somebody outside of the family poisoned the whole family um that this thing will that... come up later go ahead no what was that thing like that poison that somebody used to put in like ibuprofen or something arsenic it was it arsenic? Mm -hmm. or was it cyanide? Mm. Which one smells like almonds? 
Cyanide. Cyanide, then. Anyways. <laughs> so, um, that brings us to August 4th of 1892. John Morse, the uncle, had arrived in the evening of August 3rd and slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast the next morning, uh, where Andrew was there, Abby was there, Lizzie was there, John was there, and their maid, Maggie, or Bridget, we'll just call her Bridget, uh, was there. I don't know why they called her Maggie. They, like, called every servant Maggie. Oh, that's weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, Andrew- Maybe they really liked the Walking Dead. I- yeah, I bet that's exactly what was on their mind, for sure. Um, Andrew and John, after breakfast, went to the sitting room where they talked for almost an hour, and then John left around 8.45-ish in the morning to buy a pair of, to literally buy a pair of oxen, which is weird. Two ox. It's to weird to hear people buying things. <laughs> buying two animals, so casually. Um, and, <laughs> like, he's on vacation, too, which is weird. What's he gonna do with them? I don't know. He went to visit his niece, uh, like, I guess another niece that was around there. I don't know. <laughs> uh, because it was in the same town. It was in Fall River, so I don't know. I guess he had he other family. family there. I guess. Uh, he planned to retor return to the Borden house for lunch around noon. Um, and then Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after about nine. Morning walk? What the fuck do these people do? That's their exercise, I guess. Calisthenics and morning walks. I'm buying ox. I'm buying oxen. Um, one of Lizzie and Emma's chores in the house was to clean the guest room, but on this day, Abby was the one who went upstairs sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed and include... Uh, According, including to the, Jesus Christ, according to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. So, uh -huh. um, she saw this person and she was struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her right above the ear and caused her to like, with that momentum, she turned and fell face down on the floor, uh, which created, because she didn't catch herself, it created some injuries to, like, her nose and her forehead. Because uh -huh. she just went face first into the ground. Right. And then that, the killer struck her multiple times, landing 17 more direct hits to the back of her head, which obviously killed her. Um, when Andrew got home around 10.30 in the morning, his key didn't work, which was weird. Um, and the not, person had enough time to change the lock. I have no idea. It's super weird. But he ended up knocking on the door to get let inside. Uh, Bridget goes and unlocks the door, found it that it was jammed. So that must be why. Uh, um, and according to her testimony, she muttered a naughty word and testified that she heard Lizzie laughing at her having said this. So she's trying to get the door in jam. She's like, ah, fuck. And she hears uh, Lizzie back behind her. Um, she's like, mwahaha. She says she didn't see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This was considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time. Right. And her body would have been visible to anybody on the home's second floor, which is noted later when she is actually found. You can literally see her from the staircase. Oh my gosh. Um, Let's see. Lizzie later denied even being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, and she had replied that some messenger had delivered Abby a note 
that said like hey your friend is sick you should go visit her and i guess she went supposedly went to go do that that's lizzie's story yeah which has nothing to do with any of that was there even a note dead i've never seen any evidence of that interesting uh lizzie stated that once andrew came inside from his walk she helped him take off his boots and helped him put on his slippers before he laid down on the downstairs sofa for a nap but this is contradicted by the crime scene photos which show andrew wearing his boots okay she then informed bridget of a department store sale that she heard about and said hey you should go to this Oh my god. <laughs> Which is weird. But Bridget was like, yeah, I don't really feel so good still. Um, she was still kind of coming back from that illness that everybody got. So she Arsenic. went to take a nap in her bedroom instead. Uh, she testified that she was in her third floor room resting from cleaning windows when just before 11.10, she heard Lizzie call from downstairs uh, for her to come down quick because Andrew was dead. Uh-huh. She stated that somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times, I can't really figure that out, with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split uh, cleanly in two, oh. which suggested that he had been asleep when he was attacked. Um, and he his still bleeding wounds suggested that it was very recent. Oh my um, gosh. Dr. Bowen, the family's physician, arrived from his house, which was across the street, super convenient, uh, and just basically pronounced him dead at that point. Oh and couldn't do gosh. anything about it. And detectives estimated uh, Andrew's death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. So, obviously, the police come and investigate, and Lizzie Borden's initial answers to the police officer's questions were both strange and extremely contradictory consistently contradictory okay so initially she said she heard a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before she went into (laughs) three very different things um and then two hours later she told police that she had heard nothing and just went into the house not realizing that anything was wrong Uh, When she was asked where her stepmom, Abby, was, she stated that Abby had received a note asking her to visit the sick friend, like I said before, but then she also stated that she thought Abby had come back home already and asked if somebody could go upstairs and look for her. Okay. I understand your distress. As if she didn't know that her stepmom was dead. Everybody knew that. The police were there. Oh. So Oh, you know what I mean. So she's, she's acting like, like she didn't even like, know that. Oh, go upstairs and get Abby. I don't it's know. Like where she's... I think she's back. Somebody should go upstairs and get her. And police are like, she, she died. They're like, she's yeah, dead. we already did. Yeah. <laughs> um, what the fuck? Super she's not weird. Very good at this. Super duper weird. Um, so Bridget and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs uh, when they looked into the guest room. And saw Abby laying face down on the floor. So literally not even all the way up the the stairs and they see Abby. Yeah. Most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they disliked her attitude. And some said that she was too calm and poised. And I'm not here to like judge how people grieve. But I think certain things tend to stick out. Yeah. Uh, despite her, quote, attitude and changing alibis, nobody bothered to check her for any kind of weapons, weapons, bloodstains, anything like that. I don't know. I'll let you talk. I don't know what their, like, 
standard here's my thing though if somebody just hacked up two people like 11 10 times each like they're gonna be covered in blood Mm -hmm. so maybe that's why they didn't because they're like well she's not like i had to she there's no blood visibly on her why would we go any deeper yeah yeah i don't know um police did search her bedroom but it was not in any like search for evidence which is weird to me they said it was out of curiosity and at the trial they admitted to not doing a proper search because lizzie told them that she was not feeling well she didn't want him in her room interesting throughout this case police were pretty heavily criticized for their lack of diligence and like any sort of professionalism okay in the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon, as the break in the handle appeared to be fresh, and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that on the other tools, appeared to have been deliberately put on there to make it look as if it had been in oh. the basement for some time. I don't really know how one would do that. I mean, if, like, How do you things- find dust? I could find dust in this house right now. And you just, like, collect it, I guess. I get, Yeah, but, like... Just, like, scoop it off of a ledge and just try to... I guess. That's the only thing I can think of. Also, I don't know how you can tell, like, how a hatchet handle has freshly been broken. Like, that's beyond my comprehension, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Despite having all of these tools and possible murder weapons um, in plain sight... None of them were removed from the house at the oh, time. Good. Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the whole household before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew and Abby's stomachs, which were removed during autopsies performed in the Borden dining room. No. On their table. On the dining room no. table. Uh were what tested year was this? Fucking eighteen ninety. Eighteen ninety two, I think. That sounds right. Uh-huh. I that's It's fucked up. It's super fucked up. Gross. Uh, they were tested for poison, but none was found, and residents suspected Lizzie of purchasing, um, what did I call it? I call it two different things in this. Um, stand by, I want to find the, it's basically, it's, common name is prussic acid, um, in like a diluted form from a local drugstore, so they, people say that she bought that and was poisoning her family, trying to do it that way, it didn't work. Yeah. So she's like, Mal, just do an axe. Um, it's a very odd so transition. The, right. So, um, she stated that <clears throat> she had asked the drugstore about the acid so that she could clean her various furs that she owned, which were like fur coats and shit. Uh, despite the local medical examiner's testimony that it didn't have, it was not used for that. So that was just a weird thing i think she probably did fucking try and do and like poison them since everybody got so sick but right yeah totally i don't know that was just like a random thing that thought i'd throw in there it was of note that's more common for women to kill people through like poison and like other way more common because it's a lot less Mm -hmm. like power and like work I feel like. Yep, and you can make it look... It's not It's not dirty. There's no cleanup. Yeah, and you don't have to, like... I don't know. I feel like dudes kind of have this um, need to, like, 
like you said, like it's like a power thing. Yeah, totally. It's like a control thing. Assert their power. I'm right, like, and oh, she's I'm like, bash I, your head in. right, and it's like I kind of need you to know who's doing this to you, right? <laughs> Whereas with fuck. poison, it could be anybody, and that's maybe I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Mm. Um, Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell, decided to stay with them the night following the murders while John Moore spent the night in the attic guest room. Uh, there are some accounts that state that he slept in the room where Abby died. I don't know uh, if that's true. They said that in that documentary, but there, that's, there's contradictory information out there. That'd be fucked if he did that. But Couldn't. I don't know. Uh, they sat some police kind of guards around the house on the night, on that night, during which an officer said that he had seen Lizzie enter the cellar with that friend, um, Russell, last name Russell, Alice Russell, um, <clears throat> carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He stated that he saw both women exit the cellar, and after that he saw Lizzie returning by herself, although he was unable to see what she was doing. He stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. August 5th, John Morris left the house and was mobbed by hundreds of people, and the police ended up having to take him back to the house. And on August 6th, uh, the police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sister's clothing, and finally taking the broken-handled uh, hatchet head. They're like, oh, I guess this is important two days later. Whatever. That night, a police officer and the mayor visited the house, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect Mm. by the mayor. Shocker. (laughs) Appropriate. Yeah, also, that's not the mayor's job. No, absolutely Maybe it was back in the 1800s. Well, this never got solved, so (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's a good thing that that's not happening now. Uh, The next morning... Uh, Alice Russell entered the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it in the fire because it was covered in paint. Red paint. Uh, She was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murders or not because she did, in fact, destroy it. So, that might be the answer to your speculation earlier. (laughs) She was stripped naked, put something else on, and, I don't know, cleaned her face, but it didn't matter because they didn't fucking look at her. So, <laughs> and they didn't search her fucking room because she's like, oh, till like two days later, exhausted. I'm just so tired. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Um, did they wear like corsets back then? Do you I, know? I'm unsure. I'm just like thinking, like, how much time would it take for her to get? Well, I guess to she would take the corset off. off. Yeah. I feel like that's something you need help with. I don't know. I'm thinking of Titanic right now. I feel like you wouldn't have to replace the corset. Yeah, but, like, would you be able to lift the dress over your head wearing a corset? I would just rip it off if it had a bunch of blood on it. Fuck it. Touché. But, like, how would you get the next dress on? No idea. I don't know what that process looks like. If it's hanging up, you can just crawl up in it. Like a worm. I guess. I don't know. Like a worm. Did you say, like, a worm? (laughs) Just, like, worm on the ground until you find the dress and then just slink on up. I don't know, man. I don't know either. I don't know the logistics of 1892, like, women's clothing. Legit shit. Uh, So, Lizzie appeared at the official inquest hearing on August 8th. Her request to have her family attorney there was refused under a state statute providing that the inquest had to be in private. She, at the time, had been prescribed regular doses of morphine. (laughs) 
to calm her nerves, and it's possible that her testimony was affected by this. No fucking way. I wish I got morphine <laughs> to calm my nerves, because I would be constantly high. She'd be chill as fuck <laughs> all the time. Could never drive Could ever, but you'd Imagine, be fine. You'd like, be me working on morphine. I'd be like, oh, that's fine. We can start chest compressions if you want. <laughs> you can do that? Or, I mean, I mean uh... I'm fine either way. We can do whatever. <laughs> um... Her behavior was erratic, and she often refused to answer a question, even if the answer would be beneficial to her. So that's a good sign that she's probably not 100% there. Um, She often (laughs) contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying that she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her dad arrived home, um, and then saying that she was in the dining room doing ironing. And then saying she was coming down the stairs when he came home. So she gives just a bajillion different places in the house that she was uh, at. Um, She also said that she removed her dad's boots and put slippers on him, like I said before. Um, That was obviously contradicted by his death Actual dead body. (laughs) Yeah. The district attorney was pretty aggressive and confrontational with her. And on August 11th, she was served with a warrant for her arrest and was put in jail. The inquest testimony, which was the basis, is the basis for the modern debate regarding whether she's guilty or innocent, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial. Oh my god! Um, in June of 1893, probably due to the morphine. <laughs> her later uh, alibi, turns out, is that she was in the barn eating a pear from the pear tree. Uh, during the murders, so this was after her dad got home. She said she went out to the bar, barn to do that. But there, honestly, she would have been so smart to like have like told the housekeeper or like what was her name, Bernadette, and her parents be like, "Oh, Bridget. I heard of this really cool sale. I'm gonna go check it out and leave, yep. and then just not have left and then come back and like kill them all." Because at least Bernadette would have been like, "She Bridget. was at the store." Is it Bridget? I'm it's so sorry. Bridget. At least Bridget would have been like, "She's at the store. She wasn't here." Yeah. Yep. Fucking liar. Could have, would have, should have, right? Literally. Um. This is how you do the perfect murder 101 class yeah. with Sammy and Jack in 1892. This yeah. would never work today. But uh, true. If you ever have to time travel and murder, do that. Oh my god! But also don't kill somebody. So a grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Lizzie was indicted on December 2nd. Uh, Her trial took place in New Bedford, starting on June 5th of 1893. Five days before the trial started, on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. What? What are the odds? That's crazy. Uh, This time the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between the Manchester and the Borden's murders were very striking uh as and noted by jurors in borden's case which was good for her however a man named jose correa de mayo who was a portuguese immigrant was later convicted of manchester's murder in 1894 and was determined to not have been in the vicinity of fall river at the time of the borden murders there is speculation that he might not have done it obviously or that he had did that and did it and did the Borden's murders, but um, maybe the Borden's murders inspired him. Possibly, I don't know. 
a prominent point of discussion in the trial or press co coverage of it was the hatchet head found in the basement which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon. Um, prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood uh, but one officer testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head but another officer said that that wasn't true so they were fucking each other over oh my god <laughs> um though no bloody clothing was found at the scene uh alice russell testified that on august 8th 1892 she saw lizzie burning a dress in the kitchen stove saying it had been ruined when she brushed it against some wet paint um during the course of the trial the defense never even tried to challenge that statement huh. which is interesting they're like, we don't want to bring any more attention to that, yeah. so let's go on. Yep. So, Lizzie Borden's presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial, according to testimony. Bridget entered the second floor of the house at Bernadette. around... Yes. I'm just kidding. Bridget. Uh, at around 10.58 a.m. and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people that at this time she went to the barn and was not in the house for, quote, 20 minutes or possibly a half an hour so to that, eat a pear i guess um at eleven ten, that's when lizzie called bridget downstairs and told her that andrew had been murdered and ordered her not to go into the room and instead sent her to go get a doctor Do, i don't know man apparently I think it was a neighbor, a guy named Hyman Lubinsky, <laughs> I know, testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie leaving the barn at 11.03, and uh, Charles Gardner confirmed that time, so, I It does know. not take seven minutes to... You want to go have, like, a pear-eating contest and, like, time it? <laughs> if he was, she was leaving the barn at 11.03, and her scream for help to bridget was at eleven ten. it takes a seven it would take minutes. about seven minutes to kill her father who's sleeping yep i feel I like that imagine. leaves quite a bit of time that's quite a lot of time yeah both of the victims heads had been removed during the autopsy and oh. the skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial and presented on june 5th when she saw them in the courtroom lizzie straight up fainted uh, oh. Evidence was excluded that Borden had sought to purchase prussic acid, like I said before, reportedly for cleaning a seal skin cloak from a seal? local. That's fucked up, oh, isn't it? No. It's super fucked up. Poor baby. Yeah. From a local druggist or drugstore on the day before the murders, and the judge ruled that the incident was too remote in time to have had any connection. As if he's forgetting that the whole family was sick like the week before, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, June 10th of 1983, after an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Lizzie of the murders. That trial has been compared to later trials of Bruno Hop Hopman, I don't know that case, uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, and the O.J. Simpson case as a landmark in publicity and public interest in the history of American legal proceedings. So, mm -hmm. I believe that. Totally. Mm -hmm. However... Even though she was acquitted, Lizzie remains the prime suspect in her parents' murders, obviously. Um, right. In 18, 
1967. Nope. In 1967, a writer named Victoria Lincoln proposed that she might have committed the murders while in a fugue state, which is like a state where you're doing shit and you don't remember it. Another like association? Uh, right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Another prominent suggestion was that she was physically and sexually abused by her father, which drove her to kill him. There's little evidence for that, but incest is not like a topic that would have come up back right. then. Right. Um, and the methods for like getting evidence for that had it come up, like were not gonna really work. Right. Um, it's like they didn't have very good rape kits back then. Exactly. Uh, a mystery author named Ed McBain wrote a novel in 1984 called Lizzie, and he suggested that she committed the murders after being caught in a lesbian relationship with Bridget. Uh, he elaborated on his speculation in a 1999 in- interview, speculating that Abby had caught Lizzie and Bridget together and had reacted poorly, and that Lizzie had killed Abby with a candlestick. Because that's how speculation works. <laughs> it's like the game of... It's literally the game of Clue. With a candlestick in the guest room. Like... Uh, I don't understand. Uh, he also states that when Andrew got home, she had confessed to him, but then ended up killing him in some kind of rage with a hatchet when he reacted just like Abby did. He fur- further speculates that Bridget disposed of the hatchet somewhere afterwards. In her later years, uh, Lizzie was rumored to be a lesbian, but there was no such speculation about Bridget, who ended up finding another job after the murders and later married a man she met while working as a maid in Butte, Montana. She ended up dying in Butte in 1948, where she supposedly gave a deathbed confession to her sister, stating that she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie, but there's no... A recording of that or any official anything mm. like that another significant suspect is john morse lizzie's uncle who rarely came and like talked to the family it's not like it was a normal thing for him to come to town mm-hmm. um but he had slept in the house the night before the murders and according to law enforcement he provided an quote absurdly perfect and over detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden, <laughs> which that's a clue. If you're going to lie, make it vague. Don't make it too detailed because that is such a giveaway. Yeah. Um, he was considered officially as a suspect for police uh, for a little bit, but um, ended up being cleared for whatever reason. For his perfectly thought out detailed alibi. Yep. Others noted as potential suspects in the crimes include uh, Bridget possibly in retaliation for being ordered to clean windows on such a hot day. Um, the day of the Same. murders was, like, unusually hot. So, And at the time, she was still recovering from being sick. COVID. Right. Uh, a, quote, William Borden, who was a man suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son, was noted as a possible suspect by the writer Arnold Brown, who surmised in his book, uh quote lizzie borden the legend the truth the final chapter uh that william had tried and failed to extort money from his illegitimate is it an illegitimate father or is it just your dad and the kids i think it's estranged estranged. maybe not i don't know okay from andrew so from andrew um 
However, another author named Leonard Rabello did extensive research on the William Borden that was noted in Brown's book and was able to prove that he was not Andrew Borden's son. Although Emma had, uh, who was Lizzie's sister, had an alibi in Fairhaven, which was about 15 miles away from Fall River, uh, crime writer Frank Spearing proposed in his 1984 book, also named Lizzie, uh, that she might have secretly visited the house to kill her parents before going back to Fairhaven to receive a telegram which would inform her of the murders. I don't know, man. That Honestly, seems a little far-fetched. If there's a murder that's going to happen, I better have an alibi. You know I. You know what I need to start doing is filling my life with, like, Use things that to do. No, I mean, no, I don't Break mean that. It's just like, I planner. shouldn't be at home. Because <laughs> it's like, if I'm at home, who's to prove that I was here? Me? Because I'm probably also at home? Yeah, but we I We tend mean, to do most things together. I know, but like... Do you mean if I get killed? If you're not here and something happens, some murder happens, and I'm right. the prime suspect, which would probably be if you get killed, like, I should be, okay. like, constantly at Walmart, where <laughs> there's, like, video footage of me. You know what I mean? I need to figure this shit out. <laughs> um, Maybe we need security in the house to prove. I think that's what I'm going to do. We're going to look into security. Okay. We have the ring camera. But yeah. You can get, like, ring cameras for inside the house. Ronald. Ron. Ronnie's like, I'm not into that. I don't want you to see me. Yeah, don't watch Corn me. Cob my paws. Um, so after the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large modern house on the, the hill, which was that like really nice neighborhood in Fall River. And around that time, uh, Lizzie began using the name Lizbeth instead of Elizabeth or Lizzie. Mm -hmm. Their new house, which she named Maplecroft, uh, they had a staff that included live-in maids, a housekeeper and a coachman. Nice. Uh, because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went to Andrew, and then all of the estates oh my gosh. went to the daughters because he died second. Damn. Mm -hmm. That's dope. Yeah. Um, a considerable settlement, settlement, however, was paid to settle claims by Abby's family. So, like, they got some, but yeah, the, that like, worked legally? out really well for... <laughs> Legally, if that happened today, would that still be the same way? I have no idea. I'd feel so gypped if my mom died and somebody else's, like, stepkids, like, or kids would be my stepbrother or whatever, got that shit. So, like, if your mom remarried and mm -hmm. you had step-siblings and right. she died and then her husband died yeah. and so everything ended up going, yeah, that would be fucked That up. seems wrong. That'd be super fucked I need up. you to do research on that, um, cop-wise. You can do research on that. It's all civil. I don't know. There's no shit. cop anything with it. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> it's civil. You'll have to go to county. Sorry. I don't wanna. <laughs> I guess I'll just sit here and worry about losing whatever money my mother has. Oh, okay. Um, despite being acquitted, uh, Lizzie was pretty consistently ostracized by pretty much everybody in town. And uh, that shock doc really made a good point. Like, if she had done it and got acquitted, like, be probably moved to a different town. But she was willing to stay there because she, like, believed that she didn't do it. 
She believed that she didn't do it. Yeah. It was the demons that did it. I don't know, man. I really don't know. Um, Her name was again brought into the public eye when she was accused of shoplifting in 1897 in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And in 1905, shortly after having an argument over a party that uh, Lizzie had hosted for an actress friend named Nance O'Neill, whom she was probably sleeping with, Um, it was presumed that that was the case, Uh, her sister moved out of the house and they never saw each other again. How interesting. Lizzie was pretty sick in her last year following the removal of her gallbladder and she ended up dying of pneumonia. On June 1st, 1927, in Fall River. Dang. Funeral details were not published, obviously. Um, and very few people attended. Nine days later, her sister Emma died from chronic nephritis at the age of 76 in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire, having moved to that town in 1923, both for like health reasons and to avoid the renewed publicity following the publication of another book about the murders that would suck that would suck Mm -hmm. sisters uh neither of whom ever got married were uh buried side by side in the family plot in oak grove cemetery and at the time of her death borden was worth at the time over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars which is equivalent in 2020 to four million nine hundred ninety eight thousand dollars she owned a house on the corner of French Street and Belmont Street, several office buildings, shares and several utilities, two cars, and a large amount of jewelry. She ended up leaving $30,000, which in 2020 was about $600,000, to the Fall River the Fall River Animal Rescue League, and $500, which in 2020 is $10,000 in trust for per- perpetual care of her father's grave. Closest friend and cousin uh, each received $6,000, which is about $120,000 today, uh, which was substantial uh, sums at the time of the estate's distribution in 1927. So, wait. She had a seal coat, but wanted to donate money to an yep. animal rescue? Maybe she saw the errors of her beliefs whatever I just think that's dumb <laughs> you can perform true you think but you fuck up once and that's it you're always a fuck up or yeah, can you fuck up it. and be just better better and, and donate over half a million dollars to the cause that you once were against i don't know i don't i don't think killers i'm just kidding i'm just gonna stop Whoa. I was just going to be a dickhole, but Lizzie doesn't deserve that if she was innocent. I honestly, I'm very back and forth about it. Um, So I just want to very quickly and go, just go through like some of the hauntings um, that are experienced at the Borden house. You can stay there. It's a bed and breakfast and it's called the Lizzie Borden house. Oh, God. Um, I would love that. That sounds no. like fun. It ranges, depending on what room you stay in, for two people between, like, $250 a night to, like, $300 a night, depending on where you stay. Uh, the former owners, the McGinns, Jesus, that was hard to say, uh, the McGinns and present-day owners of the house uh, have all had some experiences, which include uh, the lights kind of having a mind of their own, turning on and off, 
the owners would be in a room and then in front of them the wall switch would flick on or off and turn on or off the lights so it wasn't just like the electricity they would literally see the switch change from on to off or off to on Hmm. Uh, when nobody was upstairs on the second and third floors, the McGinn's and their staff would hear doors open and close, followed by footsteps. Huh. Shadow people have been seen, especially on the staircase going down to the main hallway and walking into other parts of the house. Owners of the home have seen shadow people move around different parts of the house. And sometimes staff and guests can feel somebody brush against them on the stairs and in various parts of the house. Shadow of a woman and an actual apparition that looks like Lizzie have been seen down in the basement by every owner, um, most of the staff, and some guests as well. And disembodied voices have been heard as well. Owner Leanne Wilbur felt the cold touch of a finger run down her back when she quickly turned around. Nobody was there. Um, oh, that wasn't a finger, Leanne. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Anyways. Fuck. Um, you can watch all kinds of different paranormal shows that go into this house and they find similar things. And a lot of them definitely hear Lizzie saying that she didn't do it. So uh, 10 out of 10 recommend watching that shock doc, uh, The Curse of Lizzie Borden. They document a lot of shit. And uh, when I was listening to the podcast, which is kind of like a behind the scenes of it, they talk about how every camera they had failed. They ended up having to use their own personal camcorders and GoPros, <laughs> and they all would last like five or ten minutes, and then they'd have to recharge them or change the batteries. It was just like a hot mess trying to get it all recorded. Yeah, they got a ton of evidence. So that is the Lizzie Borden case slash house. That's crazy. Yeah. What do you think? I would love to live there. Nope, I would love to visit there. <laughs> Um, no. I I would be okay staying in a room where somebody didn't die. Sure. Well, there's lots of those. There's only one bedroom where somebody died in this other bedroom. I also feel like the Stanley is like one thing. Like, nobody got murdered there. A lot of people kill themselves there, though. Blissful ignorance. I don't know, it just feels weird to, like, I feel like this is very hypocritical to be like, oh, I want to go somewhere where somebody died and, like, check it out. I don't know. Take that out. Okay. It makes no sense. Okay. Um. You think she did it? I, because, like, I am willing to, like, look in at, at theories that are not necessarily provable. And I firmly believe in, you know, the paranormal and the effects that different things and energies in a house can have on a person. I really liked the theory that was put forth in that documentary that we watched. And that was that there was something on the property that influenced several people in the house, on the property. Like, that accounts for all kinds of things. Like Amityville? Yeah, a lot like Amityville. So, I, the only other suspect I can, like, physical suspect besides Lizzie would be John. Right. I wouldn't be super surprised if it turned out he did it, but I lean towards Lizzie having doing it, but not realizing what she was doing. Huh. 
So, I don't know. It's my thoughts. Very interesting. Yeah. While you were talking, I very quickly looked up pictures of the Velisca axe murders. Do you want to know, like, one of the first things that pops up? Sure. Lizzie uh, Borden. No. Well, I mean, yeah, they're very quick related searches, but I guess Ghost Adventures went there once. Yeah. And fucking Zach. Oh, God. It's Zach, go. Nick, and Aaron, so they're all being little tool bags, but um, just take a look at this. Oh, that's douchey. Yeah. they're All, all three of them are standing in front of the house holding axes. axes. Yeah. With his little fucking faux hawk. I know. And what a twat. Aaron does this little shot where he's pretending to like hack the camera that is in such poor taste yeah so but look at the sign also look at the like (laughs) the sign in front of the house is like all drapes and fake blood yeah i don't know it's very interesting so i (laughs) i'm not gonna post those so if you guys are interested in them you can google it i'm sure that the episode of ghost adventures is delightful phenomenal well do you have anything else nope okay. eat your vegetables okay we did that tonight oh we did so i, I want to eat a burger do it and take a nap hell yeah at 11 o'clock. probably not the nap part but i know i'm so tired we'll go uh cross stitch yeah yeah okay cross stitching cross stitching um, you can find us on Instagram at who knew podcast, or you can email us at who knew podcast six 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 at gmail dot com. If you're interested in supporting us in other ways, uh, we do have a Patreon. You can just search us and find us there. Um, other than that, I have nothing. There's That's no it. animals that are willing to say bye, so we will yeah. say bye. Oh, she got stepped on. Bear, come here. Come on. Do you want to say bye? Come here, Bear. Bear, come on. Go up there. No, go to Mom. Bear. Go up to Mom. Bear, Bear, come on. Good girl. Go ahead. Go up there. Come on, please. Thank you. Do you want to say bye? Bear, do you want to say bye? Do you want to lick your lips a little bit louder? Oh, big yawn. Okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) That could have produced a sound.